This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. Charlie's father had come all the way from Germany, found his way to the middle of America, found his plot of land, got married, had four kids, expected them to work the farm, and take it over one day. That is why you leave Germany in 1880-something and come all the way to Kansas. That's the point. But something was off with Charlie Victor Faust. Something was atypical, as we might say now, with the way his brain worked. History hasn't left us enough clues to sort out quite what. We're just left to try and translate, to take some of the language that people used to talk about him then. Slow, idiot, crazy, simple. And try to find a name, a diagnosis, that matches up with our current understanding of the brain and behavior, and try to pin it down before that understanding changes, and we wind up wondering just what we were thinking about what he was thinking. But there was something different about Charlie, always was, and it meant that he was not cut out to run his father's farm. And he probably knew it, probably was aware in his way that his father knew it. But he stayed on the farm, never liking the farm. And so he must have been happy for the day off when the tents went up at the fairground in Wichita in 1911. And it must have been something for this 30-year-old man to leave his little town and head to the big city, such as it was, ride some rides, walk the midway under the string lights in a summer night. There was a fortune teller there. I don't know if it was a man or a woman. I don't know if he or she read tarot cards or chicken bones or tea leaves or gazed into a crystal ball. I don't know anything about this particular fortune teller. But I know a thing or two about fortune tellers. The game is that they are less reading your cards or your palm than they are reading you. The game is they take things that they know about human nature and things they glean about you, about their customer, wide-eyed and searching or skeptical and smirking, and then concoct a vague story guaranteed to resonate specifically. The cards say you have a secret. They say you've lost something, something very valuable to you. They sense there's someone whose approval you seek, but you're afraid you're somehow not good enough for them. And then they make predictions that will hold up upon reflection, whatever the outcome. That's the game. That's how it's supposed to work. On the morning of Thursday, July 21st, 1911, John McGraw was watching his players warm up at Robinson Field in St. Louis. He was the manager of the New York Giants, who started that day three and a half games out of first place in baseball's National League. And McGraw was sitting on the bench, or hitting ground balls, or pondering his lineup card, and a man in a cheap suit walked up and introduced himself as Charlie Faust. He spoke in an odd accent, a little German and a little hick. He said he'd come all the way from Kansas, about 450 miles, because he had been to a fortune teller. And that fortune teller didn't tell him his lucky numbers, or to beware of a mysterious stranger. He told him that he, Charles Victor Faust of Marion, Kansas, would pitch the New York Giants to the World Series. Now, John McGraw was a superstitious man. He always kept an eye out for a lucky penny. He changed the color of the team's uniforms to break a losing streak. And so when this farmer showed up, decent looking kid, 6'2", pretty fit, if a little strange, with a story like that, so specific, and so, let's face it, desirable from the perspective of the New York Giants baseball club, he figured he'd see what the kid could do. So McGraw grabs a catcher's mitt and tells Charlie he's going to run through some signs. One finger for the fastball, two for the curve, basic stuff. He'll put down the sign, and Charlie will show him what he's got. So Charlie takes the mound, toes the rubber with his Sunday shoes, 
checks the sign, and leans back into his windup. Starts whipping his arm around and around like some thrill ride at that state fair, and fires the ball to the startled McGraw. Who could have boiled a pot of water during the time he waited for the pitch to cross the plate? McGraw signals for the heat, and the curve, and the screwball, and each one comes in just the same. Pretty straight, super slow, and imminently crushable. And between the absurd windmill windup and the fact that this kraut rube hasn't seemed to notice that his tryout is going terribly, the manager realizes that the kid is slow, or nutty, or a few bricks shy, or however it was that people like John McGraw understood people like Charlie Faust in 1911. And so he decides to have some fun with him, as the euphemism goes, and he tells his guys to take the field. And someone hands Charlie a bat. Folks in the stands, there early to watch batting practice, get a show as this lanky 30-year-old guy steps up to the plate in a suit and swings and misses a few times at the balls that McGraw is lobbing in until he tops a little nubber that rolls to the shortstop, who's in on the bit at this point, and bobbles it and lets Charlie take first, and then laughs as Charlie keeps going, singularly focused on trying to stretch his improbable infield single to an impossible double, and then keeps going as the delighted Giants just happen to miss the tag at second and then happen to throw the ball away, and Charlie makes the turn at third, and dives into home as the crowd goes wild. And he pops up, not bothering to brush the dirt off his suit, maybe unaware that it's there, and asks if he's starting that night. Charlie Faust sits on the end of the bench that afternoon in a too-small uniform, comically small, intentionally comically small. As the Giants play the Cardinals, he doesn't pitch, of course he doesn't pitch, but the Giants win. And the superstitious McGraw invites him back the next day, when they win again, and the next day when they win again. So the players are feeling great, and they've taken three out of four from St. Louis, they're like a half game out of first place, and they slap Charlie in the back and maybe buy him a beer or two, and they thank him for bringing them a little bit of luck. Then they hop the train out of town. They lose four out of the next six games in the road trip, and when they stagger back home, and show up at the stadium to play Philadelphia and try to turn things around. There is Charlie Faust. He'd hop freight trains. It took him a week, but he'd made it to New York City. Saw Manhattan for the first time flickering through the slats of some boxcar. John McGraw was stunned, and he knew three things. A, this hayseed was gonna be hard to shake. B, the team had been losing since they left him behind in St. Louis, and C, if you see a lucky penny, you pick it up. Charlie got a uniform and a spot on the bench, and they started winning. The papers loved the story of Charlie Victor Faust. They started calling him Victory Faust as the Giants charged up the standings. Fans would come early to watch him chase down fly balls during batting practice, would delight in how bad he was at it, how sometimes the balls would bounce off his head. Everyone would have a good laugh. During the games, he'd sit on the bench, or he'd walk up and down the dugout telling everyone in the lineup they were about to get a hit, or he'd get up and stretch, sure that this was the day he was getting into a game. Every single game. We read, and you can read this in a lot of places, baseball historians love Victory Faust. We read that the players liked Charlie, liked having him around. They certainly liked winning. He didn't get paid like a player, he didn't have a contract, but he got a per diem. Money for cabs and lunch. People would buy him dinner. They thought he was funny. Although there is that fine line between laughing with and laughing at. They also thought he was lucky. And why wouldn't they? 
on the days that Victory Faust suited up for New York during their 1911 season. The Giants won 36 games and lost two. But during every one of those games, Charlie was frustrated. Why hadn't he pitched? The fortune teller had been clear, and they're not usually clear, but this one was. He was supposed to pitch the Giants to the World Series. So why weren't they putting him in the game? Every day, every game he'd ask. And it drove John McGraw crazy. One day he kicked him out of the ballpark. He couldn't take it anymore. But then they lost, and his players wanted him back. And Charlie returned, ready to pitch. Then one day he did. It was late September, and the Giants had a spot in the World Series sewn up. So McGraw sent Charlie to the mound in the ninth inning against the Boston Braves. It was a farce. He was certainly the least qualified athlete to take the mound in the history of the major leagues. Charlie did his windmill thing. The Braves hit him hard, but the Giants outfield took care of him. The last battery face was laughing when he grounded to short. Then Charlie was on deck during the bottom of the ninth when the Giants made the last out. But the opposing manager and the umpire decided to let Charlie bat anyway. And everyone had a laugh. And they let him hit. And run the bases. And leave the field a hero. The Giants lost the World Series. Some of the sports reporters voiced some winking speculation that it may have been because the Philadelphia Athletics had their own good luck charm. A little person with a hunchback named Louis Van Zelst. Players used to rub his hump before they go up to bat. And Charlie went back home to Kansas and showed up the next spring. Said he'd been working out, he'd been learning how to throw with his other arm. He knew they could use another lefty. But McGraw didn't really want him back. The team wouldn't pay for him to go on the road. But he was welcome to do his little act before the home games if he wanted to. They went 54-11 and 11 to start out that season. But Charlie was too much. He was more insistent that year, more demanding. Something had turned, a change with him. He seemed agitated, threatening even. And McGraw told him to leave, and he refused. But some of the players convinced him to go home. They didn't need him right now, they said. But they would. They couldn't win the pennant without him. He should just go back to Kansas, sit tight, and they'd send for him when they needed him. They won the National League again that year, and they lost the series, and they never sent for Charlie. He was confused. The next season, he wrote to McGraw and wrote to the league, demanding a spot in the team. He found his way to Seattle and lived with a brother. But one day in 1914, he walked all the way down to Portland. And someone found him wandering around in a daze, saying how he was trying to find the Giants. He was committed to a state hospital and diagnosed with dementia. And he died of tuberculosis within the year. He was 34. People used to skip that part of the story. They don't anymore. That postscript has been added and expanded as baseball writers and historians have told and retold the story of Charlie Victory Faust. Because history changes, right? Reflects the times in which it was written. In the spirit of the age, some of the best contemporary writing on Charlie Victory Faust tries to take the notion of Charlie as good luck charm seriously, or as seriously as it reasonably can, and wonder at what material advantage his presence may have brought to the New York Giants during the seasons of 1911 and 1912. 
for they won an extraordinary 80% of their games, played 800 ball when Charlie was there in uniform, sure that this was the day he was going to pitch. And there is probably something to it, if something unquantifiable. Something to the idea that a batter who believes he is lucky, no matter the cause, no matter the fact that luck isn't actually a thing, could step up to the plate more relaxed, more present and focused, that his eye could pick out a pitch that little bit better. And why not the same for some pitcher who'd been two in his head for his last two starts, overthinking his delivery and obsessing about arm slot or grip, afraid of contact, but who now suddenly believes that he is destined to win because some fortune teller in Kansas was probably having a laugh at the expense of someone who likely didn't have the capacity to realize it. And so that postscript grows now. This sad ending that makes it impossible to feel entirely good about any of what came before. When the line between laughing at and laughing with, between embracing and exploiting, is so thin and unknowable. But we know, at least as far as we can, at least as far as we can understand things now, that Charlie Faust had an atypical brain. That on some plotted chart of neurological function, of neurodiversity, most of us would be clumped around the center, and Charlie would be off to the side, or way down below or above, depending on the data points and metrics. He was an atypical human being, who spent the better part of two summers of his too short life with other atypical human beings. Men whose brains could process visual information at astounding speeds, or who had diminished flight response, such that they could remain focused as a ball came way inside at 96 miles an hour, or who had a higher density of fast twitch muscles in their quadriceps than you and me, or were otherwise equipped to live lives that you and I can't lead. We know Charlie Faust got out of Kansas and saw America. We know he did pitch for the Giants. We know they won the pennant. We don't know what it meant to him. We know that when he checked into the state hospital, when he was checked in, not long before he died, he was asked to write down what he had done for work. And he wrote down baseball player. And it was true. The Memory Palace is produced by me with engineering assistance by Kathy Tu and research assistance from Andrea Milne. It is a proud, proud member of the Radiotopia Podcast Network from PRX. There is going to be a live Radiotopia show, the first of its kind, here in Los Angeles at the Theater at the Ace Hotel, uh, which is really one of the most remarkable buildings I've ever been in. And we'd love to see you there if you happen to be in town or can make it to town. Ten of the Radiotopia shows, including the Memory Palace, uh, will be performing special episodes, interviews, performances. Go to the memorypalace.us slash events to find a link for tickets. 
Also, you're going to find links for tickets to a little tour that I'm doing week of May 16th. Going to Toronto, to Chicago, to Milwaukee, and to Minneapolis, home of Prince Rogers Nelson. The uh, flag is at half-staff flying over the Memory Palace this week with Prince's death. The Memory Palace receives support from you, the listener, from the Knight Foundation, and from MailChimp. Be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Thanks.